Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 6. While you're turning there, let's take a moment. Let's welcome uh, everyone who's gathering with us at uh, First Norfolk on Volvo. So let's welcome them. Oh, come on. You're, say you're at a football game. You just cheer like golf clap. All right. Uh, well, we're so excited for uh, uh, our church to gather together, different locations, different times. Uh, but what a joy it is for us to get together and uh, open God's Word together, hear from Him, and experience the life-changing truth from His Word. Also, while you're turning in Judges chapter 6, if you remember, uh, we're on a prayer journey as a church, and every week we have an assignment uh, to pray for one thing uh, for one minute at 1 o'clock. And uh, this week, the assignment for all of us uh, for For all of us together, for one minute, let's join together at 1 o'clock and let's pray uh, for the victims of the tsunami and then the 27 or so children uh, who uh, were wiped away, uh, who who were carried away in a mudslide uh, in Indonesia, along with the thousands that were killed by the tsunami. Let's remember them in Indonesia and let's also pray uh, for those on the Florida Gulf Coast. Uh, in uh, Panama City or Mexico City Beach, uh, all, all along there, the, uh, the, the devastation is immense. And we want to take, take our time and pray every single day. We have uh, church family uh, that uh, have family there. Uh, one, of our, uh, one of our leaders in the church, Andrew Knox, uh, his mother, uh, is uh, in, on the Gulf Coast there in Florida, and on Thursday, Andrew went down, or uh, sometime around there, went down to uh, check on his mom, uh, and his wife and kids didn't hear from him until yesterday uh, because of s- such devastation, cell towers gone, and uh, communication out. Um, so, uh, but Andrew was down there helping his mother, uh, and that is multiplied tens and hundreds of times uh, not only in our church family, but in our community, people in need. <coughs> Excuse me. And so we have the opportunity to uh, not only uh, be a part of uh, an association, a convention of churches uh, on a national level and a state level that we actually send people down there to help uh, with disaster relief on the front lines of search and rescue and feeding and, and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, we have the privilege of participating with them as church family. We have uh, uh, trailers and such, and uh, as we're called on, we're ready to go. And so uh, I'm thankful to be a church, in a church that is committed to helping those who are in need. But every day for the next seven, uh, six days, uh, from today uh, to Saturday, I guess that's seven days, let's pray at 1 o'clock. Sit on your clock, sit on your, uh, do, get a sticky note, put it down. Let's pray uh, for those in Indonesia and pray for those in Florida. Now, pray intentionally that God would use this uh, series of tragedies uh, to uh, bring a spotlight on His love, that, that God would use us to demonstrate His love toward others, uh, that God would use us to communicate to those who are far from Him how that they could find life through faith in Christ. Um, let's not just pray God give them a new wall or a new roof. Uh, Let's actually pray for God to give them a new wall and a new roof and use all of this uh, to uh, 
help his gospel uh, advance and his glory and fame uh, spread. All right? So let's pray in that way. All right. All, all good? Everybody with me? All right. Okay. Let's, let's take a look at Judges chapter 6. Now, uh, as you're, uh, you, you've already turned there, uh, I don't know what you're afraid of. I'm afraid of several things. And I don't have any shame in sharing my fear. Uh, I am afraid of heights. And not just, you know, I mean, I can go up to a tall building and not be afraid. It's the jumping off part that I don't like. And, you know, it, it's, it's uh, the high dive. I always despise the high dive. I didn't go to the city public pool because I knew my friends would be there and they would try to shame me into jumping off the high dive. I do not like the idea of going up 100 feet or however tall it is. Going up 100 feet, 10 feet, whatever, and going out to the edge of a board, bouncing, and then soaring through the air and acting like that's a good idea. It's not. God did not give me wings, nor did he give me fins. So I should stay away from the high dives. There are cliffs uh, that uh, me and my buddies and groups of people would go down. When I lived in Texas, we would go down to a place and float down a river and go to a uh, a section on that river where you could climb up the cliffs and jump off. Woo! Not me, cowboy. That is not my thing. I, I, don't, I don't like it. I don't love it. And I don't want some more of it. But uh, I, don't, I don't know what else. Uh, uh, snakes. Can we all agree? Snakes. Boo. I don't like snakes. They scare me. And even if I do not believe it to be a poisonous snake, that is not a good thing anyway. It's a scary-looking thing. I don't want to have anything to do with snakes. Uh, uh, spiders. Uh, spiders don't bother me that much. I don't mind those things. They, they, don't, they don't make me nervous. But daddy long legs do. And you said daddy long legs. Those things are creepy-looking. What about a praying mantis? That's a weird-looking animal. That thing is dangerous. I guarantee you it'll, it'll hurt you. I, I don't know what you're scared of. I don't know what your fears may be. Uh, there, there is a fear of uh, peanut butter getting stuck to the roof of your mouth. It's literally a phobia. I've got to put on my glasses and actually read the name of it. The fear a peanut butter getting stuck to the roof of your mouth is arachibutrophobia. I don't have any problem with that fear. It doesn't have anything to do with me because, man, I, you realize I have my own jar of peanut butter. I don't share this peanut butter with anybody, and you wouldn't want to share it with me anyway because I don't just use forks and spoons and knives to get my peanut butter out. The inside of this jar has my fingerprints all over it. And yes, I double dip. So anyway, if you, anybody wants peanut butter, you can come up and get it later. Uh, but I love peanut butter. I'm not afraid of it. Don't care about it getting stuck to the roof of my mouth. But there are other things uh, for which I'm afraid. And I know that each of us carry fears. Do you know most... Uh, the American Psychology, uh, uh, Psychiatric Association, when they do, you know, they come out with lists of fears and they'll rank those fears. And, and almost without fail, the fear of public speaking 
is a greater fear for most people than even the fear of dying. Go figure. Uh, But fears are something that capture us. And they can debilitate us and they can paralyze us. Fear makes you do crazy things. You might write that down. I've, I've done crazy things in my life and it's because I'm afraid of doing certain things or afraid of not doing certain things. You know, I'm afraid... Uh, I, I have a fear of failure. Now, who here has a fear of failure? You have a fear of failing? Really, my fear is not a fear of failure as much as it is a fear of my failure being found out. That, that's, that's more my fear. That's because I have perfectionist tendencies. And just all kinds of dysfunction. You didn't know you were going to get to know me this well, did you? We all have fears. And those fears can debilitate us. Today, we're going to look at a man named Gideon. During a time where the children of Israel were overwhelmed by fear, Gideon himself was a man filled with fear. And yet, through the story that we look at in Judges 6, 7, and 8, we see that God raised up Gideon to be no longer a man filled with fear who was paralyzed and hiding, but God operated in and through Gideon's life so that he would be a man of courage and lead 300 warriors to defeat thousands of Midianites. The lesson that we learn in this passage and in this story and the thing I want you to hear and take hold of is that God's grace gives us the courage we need to do great things for His glory. You know, God desires for us to do great things for Him. Now, He measures the greatness and the smallness. You know, it's not for me to decide whether what you're doing is great or small. But God does desire for us to do great things for His glory. He desires for us to step out of the boat and walk on the water for His glory. He desires for us... Uh, to walk, uh, dip our toe in the Red Sea and watch it part and walk through on dry ground for His glory. He desires for us to walk across the street and talk to our neighbor about the good news of Jesus Christ that has saved our soul. Great things for His glory. God desires for us to be involved in this life in such a way that we're not just serving ourselves or our close-knit clan, of friends, but we're actually serving Him and accomplishing great things for Him. Can I ask you, when was the last time you did for God's glory? When was the last time you did small or great for God's glory? When was the last time you got out of the boat and began to walk on the water for God's glory. You see, we are not called to live a humdrum life of mediocrity. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we're called to live an extravagant lifestyle of abandon, courageously moving forward to bring God glory, honor, and fame, to share the good news of His rescuing love with people that we meet all around the seven cities of Hampton Roads and even around the world. But we've got to start by dealing with the stuff that keeps us from courage. 
And Gideon is the story of the children of Israel. Uh, at the end of chapter 5, uh, we see Deborah. Uh, chapter 5, Deborah. Deborah was the judge in Israel before Gideon. And, and as the judge, that meant she was the leader. As in, she was the boss. As in, people, male and female, looked to Deborah for direction and insight, for correction and inspiration. She's the one that led the army. She's the one that led the way. This is the woman, wonder woman, that is, who was the judge of Israel. And we cannot lose sight of Deborah. Uh, And because of her leadership, the very last sentence in chapter 5 says that the land had rest for 40 years. She led the children of Israel away from the brink of disaster and to restoration and rest. But in the good times, the children of Israel decided that they didn't need the tight hand of God's grip, not even his grace in their lives. They decided to go it alone. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel uh, made for themselves dens, the caves, and strongholds which are in the mountains. Whenever Israel had sown, Midians would come up, and the Amalekites and people of the east, they would come up against them. They would encamp around them and destroy the produce of the, uh, of the earth as far as Gaza. And they'd leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would uh, come as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels uh, were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. As we look at this passage, I want us to see it first and foremost. One simple truth, and, and I hope you take hold of this truth and you allow it to sink its roots deep into your life and your lifestyle, okay? This is key. Sin shatters courage. Really, sin shatters everything. Sin is a destructive force because it separates us from the sovereign, uh, the, the sovereign hand of God's love and mercy and grace. It, it separates us from God in his goodness. It, it, it distances us from God. Sin shatters everything. Sin shatters relationships. Sin sat, shatters our finances. Sin shatters our lives. Sin shatters everything, but sin also shatters our courage. Sin shatters our courage with a destructive force that leads us to live only for ourselves. Here's the way sin operates, okay? And, and, and this is something that we see throughout Scripture. It's certainly a cycle that the children of Israel were on, especially during the time of Judges. And it's a picture of our life as well. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. But that wasn't the first time they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Deborah came along because Israel had done evil in the sight of the Lord, and then then a a, a force had come because of their sin. A force had come to oppress them. In their oppression, they feel bad about where they are, so they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. The Lord delivers them. There's rest in the land. Then Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord again. There's this cycle of a rebel heart, and you and I have it. 
Today, if you get nothing else, understand that the cycle of a rebel heart only destroys us and those close to us. And it keeps us from courageously living for God's glory. Sin shatters our courage. Uh, Israel, they were hiding in caves in the mountains because they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, because they couldn't count on God to protect them anymore. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. Well, they had distanced themselves from God. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Understand, guys, understand. God is not our safety net just so we can say we have a safety net and live any way we want to live. God is not mocked. What we sow, we reap. But God is gracious so that we don't have to reap as much as we sow. I love that about him. God is not our robot that we command to go left or right or here or there. He is the sovereign king of the universe and he will not be manipulated. Our sin separates us from God and distances us from his favor. And so is it any wonder that we experience devastation in our life? Is it any wonder because we don't have the safety net of God's favor in our life because we've been unfaithful to him? Is it any wonder that we live in fear? We'll get back to that in a second. Gideon was afraid. Gideon was down in a wine press threshing wheat. Do you realize that threshing wheat uh, was normally done above ground? And a wine press was below the ground. Threshing wheat was taking the wheat um, with the chaff and the, and the grain, and, and it's all together. You put it on a blanket, you throw it up as high as you can. Uh, from that blanket, the, the wind blows the chaff away. The good stuff comes down and lands on the blanket, and there you have it. That's what happens when you're above ground. When you're below ground in the pit of a wine press, there is no breeze. You're just kind of whoppity, whoppity, whoppity. Not a lot of breeze, a lot more work, but Gideon wouldn't risk being in the open air because he was afraid. Sin, his sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, it shatters our courage. And by the way, we've all got this problem. It's not something, it's something any of us have conquered yet. I'm not saying don't cry out to the Lord when you're overwhelmed by your, the consequence and the destructive aspect of your sin because I've been there and in the middle of my distress, I've cried out to the Lord because I understood at that moment, he's my only hope. Please know, when sh- sin has shattered your courage and shattered your world, please know that God is your only hope and turn to him. I'm just saying that in part we're getting what we've asked for. We leave God behind and we decide in our pride we're going to do things our way. And our pride leads to disobedience. And disobedience to God leads to fear, insecurity in our life. Sin shatters our courage. The good news for us is that God gives courage to those that he calls, even in their fear. Now, looky here. In, uh, in, in, in the encounter between uh, Gideon and the children of Israel, 
what, what God does first, uh, they, they cry out to him. That's, that's verse 6. They cry out to him. And then verse 7, it says, It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, uh, children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midians, verse 8, that the Lord sent a prophet to them. Uh, can, can I tell you, they were looking for Rambo, not the professor. But God sent them the professor and not Rambo. They were looking uh, for the five-star general, not the preacher of the local church. But God sent them the preacher of the local church. They were looking uh, for a sword, not an instruction manual. But God sent them an instruction manual. Why? Because they needed to understand why they were where they were. And friends, we need to understand why we are where we are. Look at what God said to them through the prophet. Verse 8, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of those who oppressed you. and and, And I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Don't be afraid of the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Last sentence. Verse 10, but you disobeyed my voice. That's what shatters our confidence, our courage. That's what leads us in a spiral of despair, distress, and fear when we disobey the voice of the Lord. So God calls Gideon, and Gideon comes up. Uh, God, God sends an angel of the Lord. By the way, uh, in, in verse 11, it says, God sent an angel of the Lord to Gideon. The angel of the Lord, it's called a Christophany. This is Jesus before he was a baby in Bethlehem. This is angel of the Lord. This is Jesus himself come to show himself uh, to, to Gideon. And so that Gideon would understand that the Lord would be with him. So the angel of the Lord, verse 11, uh, uh, came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the, the uh, Abizurite, uh, while the, his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Stop. What about Gideon would make the angel of the Lord think that Gideon was a mighty man of valor. He was hiding in a wine press. He was hunkered down in a hole in the ground doing his work so that he would not be found out by the Midianites. What in the world made Jesus think that Gideon was a man of valor? Well, the same reason that God looks at you and in your sinfulness, he looks at me in my rebel heart, he looks at us in our own waywardness and fickleness and unfaithfulness, and he calls us righteous, and he calls us his own, and he calls us his sons and his daughters, his beloved, and he calls us uh, uh, those who have been justified. He looks at us not as we are, but as how he is going to make us to be. And he calls us by that name. He looked at Gideon in his fear. And he said, Gideon, you are a man, a mighty man of valor. And you are my warrior. 
God does not call those who are courageous, but he, but he makes courageous those whom he calls. Get this, you might feel weak, and so you and I are. We are weak in our own frailty, and we are weak in our own fickleness, and we are weak just like Gideon is in our circumstances. We are weak because we're rebellious and sinful and human and, and all those things. Yes, we are weak, but with God, we are made strong. Yes, we are mighty men and women of valor ready to take on whatever foe may come our way to accomplish God's purposes in this world. Not because that's who we are in ourselves, but because that's who God has made us to be. If you go down just a little bit further and you look in, in chapter 6, and you go down to verse 34, before Gideon took on the Midianites, the Spirit of the Lord God came upon him, and he blew a trumpet, and he said, now's the time for war. Here, here is a beautiful picture of how we find the, the courage we need in the face of our own frailties. Here's how we find the courage we need in the face of our own failings. Because the enemy, the devil himself, he'll remind you of how bad you are. Do you realize that uh, the devil works this way? When he talks to you, he begins with how bad you are. And he ends with how bad you're going to be. And he tells you truth about yourself. Yes, 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 I have failed in so many ways. Yes, he begins to enumerate the, the enormity of my failures. Yes, he begins to describe how that I've sinned against God and how I'm unworthy to be this, that, or the other thing. Yes, he de determines and describes the devil that pinpoints me, goes to the very heart of me and says, look at how wicked and dark and bad you are. And I must say, yes, that's who I am. The devil begins with how bad I am and he ends with how bad I'm going to be. But that's not what God does. God begins with who he says I am. And now, he doesn't play soft with my sin. He certainly tells me when I've done him wrong. And he certainly describes for me the sinfulness of my life. But God doesn't start there. Look, aren't you glad he didn't, be, he didn't begin with you uh, uh, until after you got your life cleaned up? See, God doesn't start conversation with us and calling with us when we have it all together. He, he, he doesn't wait for that. How could he? We'll never have it all together. But when I was dead in my sin and my trespass, God sent Jesus to rescue me by his grace to call me from death into life and to give me a new resurrected life. This is who I am. I am a son. I'm a daughter. I'm part of the beloved. God has made me his own. I'm no longer a stranger and a foreigner to the covenant of God's promise. But now I am flowing along the promise of God's love and grace for me. I am a warrior for him, even though I don't feel like it. Because God tells me who I am. He says, Eric, I love you. Yeah, you're weak, but I make you strong. Yeah, you're wicked, but I've made you righteous. Yeah, yeah, you, you're, you're unwise and you're foolish, but because of me, you can walk with understanding and strength. Listen, 
God gives courage to those he calls. And Satan's going to try to convince you that you can't do anything great for God. And I want to tell you, God says that is hogwash. Today, God wants to begin right where you are. And he wants to take you on a journey where you experience the full measure of his pleasure as you seek courageously to do greater things for him. God gives us courage to those who he's called. And finally, finally, God is not only giving us courage, but that courage comes from his very presence. God gives us himself. I want you to see this. God gives us himself. Courage doesn't come because I pull a William Wallace in front of the troops and I give them a good speech and, and tell them, and uh, even in, with my last and dying breath, they may take my life, but they'll never take my freedom. Right? It's a great line. It's great and very encouraging and inspiring, but that's not what gives us courage. What gives us courage in the face of life and death and circumstance, lions and tigers and bears, Daddy long legs and high dives. What gives us courage in the face of broken and fragile and fracturing relationships, finances that are a bust, jobs that are dead ends, mistakes that we have made, failures that we think have sunk us. In the midst of all that, understand, we can have courage to press forward toward greater things because... God is with us. You realize that it is the presence of God that gives us peace and hope and joy and strength and courage. It's not my perfection. Please. If you've been with me very long, you already know I ain't perfect. I'm so far from perfect, it's embarrassing. Do you ever feel like that? I'm so far from perfect, it's embarrassing. But for a guy like me, God has to keep my pride down so that he kills the cycle of a rebel heart. And yes, even though I have traveled path that is wayward from faithfulness to God, God in his love even sometimes by the oppression of Midianites, brings me back and shows me who I am for him, brings me back to his presence. But, but understand, there's some work I've got to do as well. Um, in order to be overwhelmed by the presence of God, I've got to get rid of the presence of other gods. you got to get rid of idols. Uh, toward the latter part of chapter 6, we don't have time to read it, but the latter part of chapter 6, you see that, that Gideon, uh, God told, tells Gideon to go uh, to his daddy's field, to his daddy's place, and go up to the top of a hill, a fortress, and tear down the altar dedicated to Baal and, re, and, and build a different altar dedicated to Yahweh God. And began to burn some offering and have worship up there. And Gideon was so afraid to do it by day because he knew people would, 
would attack him, that he did it at night. The next day, they threatened his life. But, but the bottom line is, the very first act that Gideon had to do is he had to get rid of idols. These idols, by the way, they weren't replacements for God. They were additions to God. I want you to understand how it worked back then. So, so Israel goes into the promised land and says, there is one God, only one God, Yahweh God. And we will serve him. We will have no other gods before him. That's Ten Commandments, right? Y'all got it? We'll have no other gods before him. So they get in the land, and then they see this group of people over here, and they're worshiping this little totem. And that totem, whatever, like Baal, Baal was the fertility god. So if they worship Baal, then, then they would have a good uh, harvest and, and uh, uh, crop. So the children of Israel get into the land and they they worship the one true God, but they see these totems, these little altars to Baal, the fertility God, and they say, why don't we just hedge our bets? Why don't we just decide, we've got God, yes, we'll worship him, but you know, let's, uh, God's really not enough, let's add to it. Let's have Baal as well. What have you added to your life? Because you don't trust God enough. What, what, have you, uh, what are you clinging to in your life? Because you don't cling enough to God or you don't think God is enough for you. Can I tell you, there, the, your bank account can be an idol. Your, your relationships can be an idol. The things that bring you great comfort, yeah, that can be an idol. Ultimately, anything, anything and everything that distances us, keeps us from doing, fulfilling, pursuing with all that we are, what God desires, make no mistake, that is an idol and it must be torn down. Repentance of sin is a beautiful thing. Don't act like you don't need it. We all do. Embrace it. This is what brings us courage. You see, the one phrase that we need to hold on to every day that we live and that will give us courage more than anything else is when God says, I am with you. You see it here in in verse 16. The Lord said to Gideon, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Before we can win battles against the enemies around us, we need to throw off the enemies within us. Stop blaming everything outside as the reason why you're so fearful and start looking to the enemy within, the idol that we've erected in our own heart, the sin that we've embraced, the lies that we've believed. Let's tear them down today. And the Lord will be with us. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? The Lord will be with us. And Gideon says, how will I know that the Lord will be with me? And Gideon understood what God wanted him to do. He wanted to take the battle to the the Midianites. But but Gideon said, how will I know that the Lord is with me? So at the end of chapter 6, he he comes up with a plan. He's going to... He's going to strike a bargain with God. He says, now, God, so that I can know that you'll be with me in this fight against the Midians, I'm going to lay out some fleece. 
and I'm going to lay it out on the ground. And what I want you to do, please don't be mad at me because he knew he was stretching his, his, his he was just, it, it was testing God. But he said, God, don't, don't be mad at me, but, but here's what I want you to do. Uh, I'm going to lay out this fleece, and, and if you will make the fleece wet with dew, but all the ground around it dry then I'll know that you're with me. He goes to bed, the fleece is out, he gets up the next morning, and sure enough, the fleece is, is wet and all the ground, rest of the ground is dry. But that's not good enough for, for getting, because he says, well, God, please, please don't be mad at me, but uh, I want to do this again. I want to try it a different way. I'm going to lay out the fleece again uh, tonight, and if you will um, make all the ground around the fleece wet, but keep the fleece dry, then I'll know that you are with me. God didn't complain. He is so patient with us, isn't he? He didn't complain. God didn't, God didn't punch him in the nose like he probably he didn't want to. Well, maybe he did. But anyway, you know what God did? He did exactly what Gideon wanted because he wanted Gideon to know that he would be with him. Oh, how can you know that God is with you when you go to the doctor and when you're under surgery? How can you know that God is with you when you're uh, looking for that relationship, that, that, uh, that marriage relationship or that dating relationship? Or how, how do you know that God is with you when you're coming to church or, or deciding which church to come to? And How do you know that God is with you? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know that God is with you in the thick and the thin and the ups and the downs and the good and the bad? How do you know that God is with you? We don't need a fleece because we've got Jesus. And Jesus is the unveiling of God's great love to humanity. Jesus, his cross and his resurrection show us that God is with us. The very name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. If you've got Jesus, then you've got God with you. It's what Jesus was talking about. Matthew chapter 28, when he gives the greater things that we're to do, he says, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've taught you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is our fleece. We don't need a different sign. We've got the greatest sign of all, the Son of God, the, the man from heaven who has come to set us free from our sin and give us life eternal. This Jesus has committed himself to us. And just as the Spirit of God clothed Gideon and empowered him, God, by his Spirit, clothes us and empowers us so that we can walk each day in the wisdom and the strength and the power of the living God. Today, we can be courageous because we can know that God is with us. His love is unfailing toward us. You know, 1 John says that God's love, his perfect love, casts out fear. It's a beautiful picture. But how does that work in our lives? How can we wake up tomorrow and be courageous by resting in the love that God has given us in Christ? By living dependent upon that amazing love that soaks our soul in a life-shaping, soul-changing kind of way. I want to end with just one passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, that really describes the journey that Gideon 
and that we can go on. This is a passage of courage. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 31. Think, as, as I read this, think about your life. And think about what you need to have courage in the face of your difficulties. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, We're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, in every single one of them, in all these things, we, you and me, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall ever, ever, ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that we would soak our souls in the truth that you deliver to us That we would begin to see and understand the beauty of your love and your grace and your mercy toward us. That we would begin to, 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 to lean into and lean upon this wondrous, powerful love that you have unleashed toward us through Jesus. But God, so much of life can be ferocious and we can become fearful. May we look to your presence as the only cure. May we, may we look to your presence and sustaining intimacy with you as our key pursuit. Because without you, oh God, we're cocooned in a corner, cowering in our fear. So Lord, for every person here today, may we run into your presence, know you, oh Lord, more and more. May we Find our greatest treasure to be your presence and our favor in in your presence. God, I pray that for each of us we would consider the, the idols of our own making, the idols in our heart. God, each of us have sin that that needs to be shattered so that that sin doesn't shatter us. God, I pray that we would deal with sin. Would you put a spotlight on our sin today? Not so that we would feel the shame of it, although that may be important to do. 
Show us our sins so that we could confess it and turn from it right now and turn back toward you in faithfulness. Oh God, tear down some idols in, in our lives today. God, I pray that in these next few moments as you speak to us, that we would listen to you. In this time of reflection and response, God, I pray that you would lead each of us into your presence, that we would know you more fully. Now be glorified as we worship you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.